If you have your Bibles with you, you can be turning to Revelation chapter 21, the verses that Ray just read a moment ago, Revelation 21 verses 1 to 8. That is going to be our first main passage that we'll be looking at together. So this morning we come to our final message in the series that we've been doing for the last four weeks now. Today is our our fifth week in the series. And what we're going to be concentrating on this morning is what? Restoration. Where Jesus Christ says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. But just for a moment, let me just kind of recap what we've been looking at for those who may not have been present for each of the messages and kind of to set up the scene for what we're going to be looking at as we focus in on restoration. So the title of our series has been Created to Glorify God and Enjoy Him Forever. That's the theme that we've been focusing on there. God's glory and our joy that's found within His glory. And we've been tracing this theme through creation, fall, redemption, and now this morning, restoration. And then there was a there was another sermon that was added in there, the one that we focused on last week, which was primarily about fighting for joy, you could say. Or fighting for joy when your soul feels cast down. And we looked at Psalm 42 in the example that it gives us there. So in creation we saw that in the beginning God created all things and His primary reason for doing that was for His glory, to make Himself known so that others could enjoy who He is and and exalt in who He is, enjoy who He is. That is what our primary purpose is as His creatures and especially human beings being made in His image. Then we came to the fall where man rejected God's glory whenever they took hold of the forbidden fruit and ate of it, choosing to do what they wanted instead of what God had commanded them to do, choosing disobedience rather than obedience. And in that moment, they rejected God's glory and exchanged it for something else, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I believe. And then we came to... Redemption, where Jesus Christ comes on the scene. He is the the promised one of Genesis 3.15, the the serpent crusher, as He is called. And He, in part, makes all things new. He, He comes and He is crucified on the cross. He gives His people new life when they believe in Him. They pass from death and from sin to new life. In part, life is still very much a struggle, and that's what we were looking at last week. Life is still hard, even though you may be a Christian now. Although you may desire to be with Christ and to serve Him with your life, it's still hard, we still struggle, we still fail, we still sin. And so life is still very much a fight But you remember I said that the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that the Christian has this desire within them to fight, whereas the non-Christian does not. 
So the Christian life is a life of fighting, continually fighting, desiring to be like Christ. But you know, one day it will not always be like this. Life will not always be a struggle. Life will not always be a fight. One day it will be peace forevermore. And that's what we come to this morning. Because Jesus has promised that He will return and that when He does return, He will make all things new. Everything, when Christ returns, will be as it should be. We read this at the end of Revelation 22 in verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So you can bet and you can hope in, you can trust in that that promise will come true. Jesus Christ will come and He will make all things new. He says, surely I am coming. Surely I am coming. Now as far as this sermon goes, as we focus on restoration, similar to last week, there's really only going to be two parts to the sermon. So relatively simple layout. First, I want us to look at the new heavens and the new earth. Let us just get an idea, a picture of what this is going to look like. What the new earth and the new heavens will look like when Christ comes back and He does make all things new. And then secondly, I want us to look at the Great Commission. Because while we wait for Christ to return and to make all things new, we are not called to just be sitting here with big smiles on our faces as we wait. I mean, yes, we do smile and we are excited for that to come, but we have work to do. The Lord Jesus Christ has commanded us to be doing something while we wait. So we'll be looking at what that is So before we dive into Revelation 21, looking at the new heavens and the new earth, please pray with me as we ask the Lord for His help. Our Father in heaven, we come before You once again, and as Your Word is now open before us, we ask that You would quiet our minds and our hearts, and that You would help us to see Your Word as it is, to see it as truth. Lord, I ask that You would be with us as we look at Revelation and we we look at what is coming. Lord, I pray that as we look at this, our hearts would burn within us, that we would desire these things above all else, that we would desire the day when Christ returns and we will see His face and and we will enjoy Him forever. And Lord, I also pray that when we look at the Great Commission, our hearts would again burn. It would burn within us for all of those who do not know You. That we would desire to see them saved. Lord, may You be with us as we look at Your Word. May You fill us with Your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Revelation 21 and verses 1 to 8. So what I'm going to do as we look at these verses 
And not only these verses, but also verses 22 to 27, and then some verses in chapter 22. I'm just going to read these verses, and you can follow along with me, and I'm just going to comment here and there as we read together on some of the language that is used. Because as we read through these verses, you're going to notice that there is a lot of Old Testament language that is used. And there's also a lot of language that points back to the Garden of Eden and what was broken and how now, when Christ comes back, it will be restored. So beginning in verse 1, let's follow along as we read together and I comment here and there. So this is the uh, Apostle John who is receiving these visions from God on the island of Patmos whenever he was sentenced to exile there. And while he was there, the Lord came to him and started giving him all of these visions. Well, now we are toward the end of these visions and God is showing him what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like when Christ does come back and He makes all things new whenever He restores all things. So this is what He says in the beginning of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Pause there for a moment. When John says, and the sea was no more, he's not literally talking about the water or the ocean. Remember, in Jewish literature, the sea was often symbolized as, as what? As like a form of chaos. Because, you know, when you think about the sea, it just roars this way and that way. You know, its, it's waves go wherever they want, really. There's no, when you look at the sea, you don't think organization. You think chaos. You think disorganization. And the Jews often thought of the sea as a picture of evil. You know, the sea was kind of this dark thing that you didn't really want to be in the sea because you didn't know what was in it. So when he says in the sea was no more, he's showing that God is removing evil itself or chaos itself. Continuing in verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, as it originally was in the the first couple of chapters of, of Genesis, where God dwelt with Adam and Eve and they walked with Him in the cool of the day. That will happen once more. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be them, be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more a consequence of sin. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. These are some of the things that we looked at in our third message when Christ comes on the scene and because of His death, because of His resurrection... For all of His people, for all, who know, for all of those who know Christ, when we come into the presence of God, all of these consequences that came because of sin, they will be no more. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I love that. This hasn't happened yet, you know. And what does God say? And he said to me, It is done. This is so sure that God can say, before it happens, it is done. It's as if it has already happened. That's how faithful God is and that's how sure His promises are. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now I know that last part of verses 1 to 8 is hard to read, but I want you to think about this. The ones who are in that category are the ones who have willfully rejected God over and over again. They have rejected God. They have rejected His glory. And they have rejected the thought of enjoying Him. They may want His gifts, but they do not want Him. So why would they want heaven where God feels it and His glory is known? Plainly. Why would they want that? They don't want that. So what they rightly deserve and what the alternative is is a place where God and His goodness is not present. Which is what John describes here or what God describes here in verse 8. Yes, it's hard to swallow, but for those who reject God and all His goodness... This is the alternative, and this is what they deserve for rejecting His glory. Jump down to verse 22 with me. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. Again, some figurative language being used. It's possible that there may literally be no night, but it also shows that there will be no evil. In John's Gospel that he wrote, he often used the word night to refer to like, Uh, things that were done at night, evil things, evil deeds. So now he says there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, 
with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Now, when was the last time that we saw a tree of life? It was again in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Because you remember there were two trees that were specifically mentioned in the garden. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other was the tree of life. When Adam and Eve took and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what they were not supposed to eat of, they were then banished from God's sight and they were banished from the tree of life, which was just symbolizing they were cut off from life. But here in the new earth and in the new heavens, the tree of life is present and anyone can approach it. We have been brought back into God's presence. Therefore, we have been brought back into the very presence of life. The leaves of the tree were were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb of God will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. I want you to pay very close attention to verse 4. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. What does that mean? They will see His face, and His name will be written on their foreheads. That doesn't mean that in the new earth and in the new heavens, since we see God's face, that His name will literally be like tattooed on our forehead. That's not what John's talking about here. What John is talking about is that in the new heavens and in the new earth, because we will see God face to face, because we will see Christ face to face, we will then reflect or glorify God as we were originally created to. So it will be as if His name is written all over our face. You think about this for a moment. When we're... You're in conversation with somebody. You know, usually this is kind of like a joke that's used. If you're talking to somebody and they don't really want to give you an answer, but you ask them a question and their their answer is written, what, all over their face? Their expression? They don't, they don't need to say anything. It's written all over their face. It's the same thing here. We will see God face to face. And His image will once again be written all over our face. Everything that we say, everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we desire, it will reflect God perfectly and the Son of God perfectly. So that theme that we've been tracing comes to fruition completely in part when Christ come on the scene, but completely here in the new heavens and the new earth, glorifying God and enjoying Him as we were created to. In verse 5, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So this is what we eagerly wait for, brothers and sisters, in Christ. This is what we have been promised. This is what we desire. It's what we wait for. It's what we 
long to happen, the, the new earth and the new heavens to be ushered in. And it will come, even though there are some who mock it and say that it will not come, you know, because of the length of time that's already passed since these promises were made. We've said this many times. There are, there are a lot of people who reject the things of God. They reject the truth of God's Word just because of how long it's been since these promises have been made. You know, a little over 2,000 years since Jesus told His disciples on that day long ago that He would be coming back and it still hasn't happened. But listen to what Peter says in his second letter very well-known verse. And as he writes here, people were doing the same thing. They were mocking the, the promises of God and saying that, you know, these promises aren't going to come true. Why would it? Things are continuing as it were before. But this is what Peter says. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow. The Lord is not slow. 2,000 years to the Lord is not slow. (laughs) To fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The reason why it has taken so long is not because the Lord is slow, as Peter says, to fulfill His promises. He's being patient. And just think about it this way. If God would have come back, if Christ would have came back, a thousand years ago, you would have never been born. And you would have never experienced what it was like to know Christ. And you would never experience what we just read in Revelation 21 and 22. So the longer that God waits, the more opportunity He provides for people to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. He's being patient, desiring that all would come to Him and enjoy the great gift that He freely gives. So you can be sure that the Lord will return. When? I don't know. It could be a month from now, or it could be another 2,000 years from now. I don't know. And even though there are many who proclaim to know, they don't know either. But you can be sure that it will come. As the Lord says in chapter 21, it is done. It's as if it already happened. It will come. So we should not be surprised when it does. But until then, until that day comes, whenever it may be, as I was talking about a moment ago, we are not called to just be meeting together, enjoying fellowship, and that's it. We're not called to huddle together in our churches, in our 
our groups and our assemblies. We are called to be doing something. We are called to be working. We are called to be reaching communities, nations, desiring, as the Lord does, that they too would be able to enjoy what we have been freely given. So until that day comes, we are called to work. And what does that work look like? What is the job that we have been given as Christians until Christ comes back? Well, we are told in Matthew chapter 28, so if you would please turn with me there. Matthew chapter 28 to what is called the Great Commission, where Jesus is just about to leave His disciples. He's about to ascend back into heaven after He is resurrected to the grave. And before He does, He has one last thing that He wants to tell His disciples. And this is it in verse 16, Matthew chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as Christians... As followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, this is what we are called to be doing. We are called, commanded, use that word again, commanded to be making disciples. This is what Jesus has commanded His followers in the first century and every follower since then. We are to be making disciples. So what is a disciple? I know that's kind of a, a simple question, but really, what, what, what is a disciple? We're called to be making disciples. So the first place we need to start is by asking, okay, well, what is a disciple? What does a disciple look like? What do they do? How are we to make them? So a disciple is basically someone who follows the teachings or the ways of somebody else. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who follows the ways or the teachings of somebody else. So there, are, Jesus isn't the only one who has disciples. There are many people then and now who have disciples. Buddha, he has many Disciples. Muhammad has many disciples. And you could go down the list. There are many so-called gods, lords, religions that have disciples. People who follow in these ways or follow these teachings. So as disciples and followers of Christ, we are called to be following the ways and the teachings of Christ and of Him alone. So that is what a disciple is. So the second question that I ask, what does it look like to make disciples of Jesus? So if a disciple is someone who follows in the ways or the teachings of somebody else and are 
context, Christ, what does it look like to make a disciple? What does it look like to make somebody who follows the ways and the teachings of Jesus? Well, the first thing that we need to understand about making disciples is that we cannot do this without the help and without the power of God. Without God's help and without His power, we aren't making anything. (laughs) We aren't making any disciples. Because if you remember, as we were talking about in the, the third message as we looked at redemption, salvation is a what? It is a miracle. A miracle that God Himself brings. We preach the gospel, we share the gospel, we seek to make disciples, but if God does not move, if God does not draw people to Himself, then we will all labor in vain. Listen to these passages here. This is Mark chapter 4. Jesus is telling a parable of what the kingdom of God is like and what it is like to to share the gospel, what it is like to spread the good news of the kingdom of God. He says this, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So the farmer works, he plants his seed, he waters the seed, but there's nothing that he can do to make it grow. The Lord gives the growth, and when he gives the growth, he goes in and he reaps the harvest. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 7. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians who were boasting in the leaders that they had. And he says to them, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants for whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered. But who gave the growth? God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. In other words, you are nothing when it comes to actually giving growth or making somebody a disciple, making them grow, making them a Christian. You are nothing. As Paul says, what am I? What is Apollos? He scattered the seed, I watered. Who gave the growth? It wasn't me. It wasn't Apollos. It was God. Colossians 1. This is Paul again. Him we proclaim, proclaim, speaking of Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. We'll read the last part of that passage again. He says, for this I toil, struggling. So Paul toils in this endeavor. He struggles in making disciples, in sharing the gospel, in preaching Christ. He struggles in this. He works extremely hard. But is it with his energy? Is it with his own power to succeed? No, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all 
His energy that He powerfully works within me. So yes, you are called to work. You are called to make disciples. You are called to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them in the ways that Jesus has commanded. But if God is not with you, and if His power is not working in you and through you, you and I and the whole church will fail. So we need to remember that. I know that sounds obvious, but how many churches have you gone to or how many churches have you known and maybe us at some point in time, I pray not now, been guilty of gathering together, looking at the world, wondering how we can reach it and saying to ourselves, you know, if we have this method, if we have this plan, if we have this five-step process or whatever it is, it will work. You know, I do this, I work in this way, this is the result. Not that plans are bad, not that methods are bad, but that's not what ultimately gives the growth. So when we think that way, when we operate that way, dependence is put upon us and what we can do, the methods that we can come up with, the plans that we can make, and not on the power of God that works in and through Weakness, which is all of us. So now back to the question, where does disciple take, take place and, and what does it look like? So we know that we are called to be making disciples. We know that we can't do it on our own. God must be present and working in us and through us. So what does it look like? Where does it take place? Discipleship primarily takes place within the local church. And then also discipleship, take, it takes place locally or it happens locally. And then discipleship happens globally. So those are the three places that discipleship takes place. Primarily in the local church, it takes place locally, and then it takes place Globally. So I'm going to dive into those three a little bit closer. So what do I mean whenever I say that discipleship primarily takes place within the local church? Why does it primarily take place here? This is a local church. So why does it primarily take place here? And not only why does it primarily take place here, but if you don't have a local church, you're not going to have discipleship, period. Why not? So I say that the local church is the primarily, the primarily, <laughs> the primary place that discipleship takes place because it is within the local church that you have believers gathering together weekly. That takes place in the local church. Believers gathering together weekly. It's within the local church that you have believers sitting underneath the teaching of God's Word weekly. That takes place in the local church. It's within the local church that you have believers praying together. Now remember, this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a building. The church is not a building. It's Christians who gather together. That's the church, an assembly. 
of Christians. So when Christians are assembled together, these things are taking place. It's within the local church that Christians hold each other accountable. I want to spend a little bit more time on this one. And I'm going to talk just for a few moments on church membership because this is crucial to discipleship. And it's crucial to the local church and believers in general. So it is primarily within the local church that Christians are holding each other accountable. This is why we practice church membership. Now, you don't have to call it church membership. You can call it accountability or you know, some other name. I know churches have different names for membership. But the point behind membership is accountability. When we gather together as Christians, we hold each other accountable because we can't do this on our own. You know, a Christian who is by themselves, going it alone, being the lone ranger, they're sitting ducks in the world. A Christian who is by himself, by herself, will not persevere. We need each other. So whenever you enter into, into a local church where you have accountability or membership, those things are in place so that that can flourish. Because if you don't have accountability, if you don't have some type of membership, let's say somebody within our church who gathers with us weekly and they're not a member. I'm not trying to pick on those who are not a member, by the way, but this is just the truth. If one of you, if you're not a member, if you haven't submitted to our church covenant, you know, the accountability, saying, hey, I... I want to enter into accountability with you. I want you to hold me accountable and I want to hold you accountable as we walk the Christian life. If those things aren't in place, if you decide to just get up and leave and walk out on your faith and try to make shipwreck of it, what can we do? There's no accountability there. You haven't expressed a desire to be accountable to us and we haven't expressed, expressed a desire for you to be accountable to us or us to be accountable to you. You see what I'm saying there? If you are not a part of church membership or church accountability, you can just walk out and nothing can really be done. And this is why it is so important when like missionaries, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more in a moment, when missionaries go on the scene and they are spreading the gospel and trying to build Christ's kingdom in these other cultures, if there's not a local church for them to send these newly converted Christians to, what are they going to do? Where are they going to go? How are they going to grow? What accountability are they going to have? when they struggle with sin or when the enemy comes in and attacks them. If missionaries are on the scene and they're spreading the gospel and there's no church on the, you know, wherever they are, I mean, yeah, you can convert people to Christianity and the Lord can definitely use that, but you are hindering them greatly. A Christian without the local church is in great danger. The last one for uh, the local church. So it's within the local church that Christians 
Build each other up in the faith. This is something else that is totally necessary to to the Christian walk. Building each other up in the faith. Because as we looked at last week, it's a fight. You're going to get discouraged. You can bet on it. It's going to happen. You will have hard days. And you will feel like giving up if you don't feel like giving up today. How are you going to overcome that? Yes, with the strength of the Lord, but also with the help of the church. That's why when you read the New Testament, the church is present wherever you are looking. There is no solo Christianity in the New Testament. Solo Christianity does not exist. It's Christ and His people together. So that's why I say that discipleship primarily takes place here in the local church. And Christ knew this when He came on the scene and He set it up. He's the one who instituted and founded the church for one of those reasons. Secondly, discipleship happens locally. And what I mean whenever I say that discipleship happens locally is somewhere within your own community. Discipleship can happen just about anywhere. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a missionary in order to make disciples. You can do this just about anywhere within your own community. Discipleship can happen at your school. If you're a student, college student, or high school student, whatever. Discipleship can take place in that setting. Bible studies can take place in that setting. Sharing the gospel can take place in those settings. At your house. This is a big one. Discipleship better be taking place in our houses, especially if you have kids. Because you are their primary teacher. Not me, not the Sunday school teacher, the children's church teacher, nursery teacher. You are their primary primary discipleship maker. Within marriage, discipleship takes place as husband and wife build each other up in God's Word and hold each other accountable. So it better be taking place in the home. If you are married, if you have kids. Discipleship can take place at work as you get to know your co-workers and you share the gospel with them. Possibly, you know, if you're allowed to, read the Bible with somebody, you know, on your break or have conversations about the Bible or, or things like that. I'm just, I'm just trying to show you how easy, and what I mean by easy, I, it's easy to bring these things there. It's flexible. Now, doing that, putting that in place, having those conversations, that may not necessarily be easy, but I'm just trying to show you how flexible these things are. When you're hanging out with friends, in any particular place, discipleship can happen. It takes place within our own communities. 
And then thirdly, discipleship happens globally. And by globally, I mean throughout the world. Make disciples of all nations, Jesus commanded. This is why we send out missionaries. This is why we take up our missionary fund. Because it takes money to do this. It takes money to send these people out. You know, they have needs too while they're there. They need food. They need shelter. They need resources. They need money as they go out. This is why we support them. This is why the church sends them out. Again, this is why the church sends them out. It is from within the church that missionaries are sent out. Going back to where discipleship primarily takes place within the local church. The church sends out missionaries and missionaries lead them back to the church. If a church loses its focus on the global mission of making disciples, then it's shooting itself in the foot and it will probably soon die because it has lost an outward focus and really just has kind of an inward focus. Whether we've lost the focus of global discipleship or local discipleship within our own community. And you know, it may be possible that God calls some of you who are sitting here this morning at some point in some time to be a missionary. Somebody who leaves their culture or their country to go somewhere else to spread the gospel of Christ. You may be called to do that one day. I pray He does. Are you sensitive to that call in some way? So what a great and glorious task we have been given by our Lord. I mean, you just think about that for a moment. The the great commission. You know, as we wait for God, for, for Christ our Lord to come back and to issue in the new heavens and the new earth, He has given the responsibility of expanding His kingdom, of building His kingdom to you, to me to us, to His church. That is a massive and very weighty responsibility. And I pray that we take it seriously. You should also know that this will not be an easy task. Easy as in not flexible flexible as I was talking about earlier, but difficult when you go to put these things in place or when you go to share the gospel with somebody or when missionaries go into other cultures and other countries. When you seek to make disciples, it will not be easy. In fact, there will be some who will not like you because you seek to tell them about Jesus and how they need Him. Turn with me to to Luke chapter 14. This is, again, the Lord Jesus talking to His disciples and to the crowds that were present there, and He's talking to them about the cost of discipleship. If you are to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, there is a cost. And He calls you to count that cost. Verse 25, Now the 
Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Have we counted the cost of what discipleship means? What it means to follow Jesus? Especially in a culture where following Jesus is a very flippant thing. Now, in that passage, Jesus does not literally mean that you must hate your mother, hate your father, hate your brother, hate your sister, and hate yourself. That's not what He literally means. Jesus is using hyperbole here. You know, He's exaggerating His language to get across the point that He's making. What Jesus is saying is that if you, and we were talking about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, if you are to follow Me, if you are to be My disciple then everything else goes by the wayside. Are you prepared to leave everything? Are you prepared to say that I am your treasure and compared to me, these things are nothing? That is what he is saying. And people will not like it when you tell them that. They didn't like it when Jesus told them that. They will not like it when you tell them that. Now in our culture, you are most likely not going to be beaten or tortured in some way. You're just likely to be made fun of, to be called a hypocrite or a bigot or something like that be called names, you may be not considered cool, you may not be in the inner circle, you may not be accepted in your workplace or in your school or maybe even in your own family. Your friends may reject you and cast you to the side. They may not like you. You know, that's probably what we're going to face I mean, that's still hard. I know it's hard. You know it's hard if you've experienced things like that. But you will experience some persecution in some way. So are you prepared for that? Have you counted that cost? The cost of following Jesus is high. You will be persecuted in some shape, form, or fashion. But oh, it is so worth it. Because 
in being rejected or in losing these other things, you gain the greatest joy and the greatest satisfaction ever. If you do lose in this life, it cannot be compared to the gain that you have in Him, in Jesus Himself. Now as I close our time together in this sermon and in this series, I want to bring before you a couple of quotes that have been particularly encouraging to me in my Christian life. And then also one of my favorite passages in the the New Testament. The first quote comes from Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a very famous missionary who died on the mission field. Him and his team. I can't remember the, the name of the people group that they were trying to reach. But they landed ashore on this nation, country. And it was shortly after that they were speared to death. By the, by the tribe that was there seeking to, to reach them with the gospel, to share the gospel with them. And, we, and the guys and I, we were talking about Jim Elliott this past week and something that we found out is that they all had pistols. They could have shot them, but they didn't and decided to die for the, for the sake of Christ, hoping that these people would somehow see them give their lives for the gospel and see how important it is. But he wrote this, I think in his early 20s. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The second one comes from John Piper, who is one of my heroes in the faith. Most of you know that, but this is what he writes. He says, If you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risk will be high, and your joy will be full. Amen to that. Now the final thing I want to read, the final quote comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 to 11. And this is the Apostle Paul. He writes, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection 
and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you know Him? Is He your Lord? Is He your Savior? Is He your highest treasure? above all else, the one you desire. Our Father in heaven, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your great promises that you will one day return. Our Lord will return and He will make all things new. We will experience you fully. We will see your face and your name will be written upon us. We will reflect you. We will glorify you. We will enjoy you forever. Lord, may you continually help us to treasure our Lord above all else on the good days and on the difficult days. And I pray that if someone here does not know Christ in that way, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would know that He turns none away. He welcomes all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.